If you were able to join online uh, Thursday, you saw a video by the work of the people um, that was um, part of a video liturgy that they did to uh, support a prayer called Praise Song for the Pandemic that was written by Christina Valter's painter. I'll read that prayer to you now. Praise be the nurses and doctors, every medical staff bent over flesh to offer care for lives saved and lives lost for showing up either way. Praise for the farmers tilling soil, planting seeds so food can grow, an act of hope if there ever was one. Praise be the janitors and garbage collectors, the grocery store clerks and the truck drivers barreling through long, quiet nights. Give thanks for bus drivers, delivery persons, postal workers, and all those keeping an eye on water, gas, and electricity. Blessings on our leaders making hard choices for the common good, offering words of assurance. Celebrate the scientists, working a way to understand the theme that plagues us, to find an antidote. All the medicine makers, praise be the journalists keeping us informed. Praise be the teachers finding new ways to educate children from afar and blessings on parents holding it together for them. Blessed are the elderly and those with weakened immune systems. All those who worry for their health, praise for those who stay at home to protect them. Blessed are the domestic violence victims on lockdown with abusers, the homeless, and refugees. Praise for the artists and poets, the singers and storytellers, all those who nourish with words and sound and color. Blessed are the ministers and therapists of every kind, bringing words of comfort. Blessed are the ones whose jobs are lost, who have no savings, who feel fear of the unknown gnawing. Blessed are those in grief, especially who mourn alone. Blessed are those who have passed into the great night. Praise for police and firefighters paramedics, and all who work to keep us safe. Praise for all the workers and caregivers of every kind. Praise for the sound of notifications, messages from friends reaching across the distance. Give thanks for laughter and kindness. Praise be our four-footed companions with no forethought or anxiety responding only in love. Praise for the seas and rivers Forests and stones who teach us to endure. Give thanks for your ancestors, for the wars and plagues they endured and survived. Their resilience is in your bones, your blood. Blessed is the water that flows over our hands and the soap that helps keep them clean, each time a baptism. Praise every moment of stillness and silence so new voices can be heard. Praise the chance at slowness. Praise be the birds who continue to sing the sky awake each day. 
prays for the primrose poking yellow petals from the dark earth. Blessed is the air clearing overhead so one day we can breathe deeply again. And when this has passed, may we say that love spread more quickly than any virus ever could. May we say this was not just an ending, but also a place to begin. Amen. I'm not sure if uh, you realize this or not, but we are still in the season of Easter, which means that I still get to wear this white stole. We wear white on the high holy days and the days of celebration, and so uh, I still get to wear this white stole as I'm preaching or or doing communion um, to celebrate the fact that Death does not have the last word, that resurrection always happens, and that we uh, worship a God and know a God and are empowered by a God and redeemed by a God that is with us celebrating also. I'll be reading this morning from the book of Acts. This is a story of Paul. Now, Paul... Uh, I know is a very controversial and polarizing character when anytime I'm leading a Bible study and we start to read one of the letters of Paul, people are very um, generous with their opinions of Paul. They're either going to let me know that they like him or most likely that they don't like him. And most of the time, I want to take the place of defending Paul. One of the best sermons that I ever heard was a sermon where a seminary colleague of mine uh, that she preached, and it was a letter that she wrote to Paul saying, Paul, if you knew what they had done with your words, how they misunderstood what you were talking about, what would you have done? How would you have changed it? What did you really mean? And it was this beautiful sermon to talk about grace and love and what Paul was really about. So I would encourage you, if you're one of those people who are curious about Paul and you don't really know if you like him or do like him or if you've already kind of set your opinion, to go back and read the book of Acts. Because in the book of Acts, we read about Paul. And I think sometimes the best way to get to know someone is to hear how people talk about them. Because the way that someone talks about someone else is the way that they're experienced. And the way that people experience Paul in the book of Acts is different than the way we experience Paul when we read the words that he wrote to churches that were in crisis and they were causing problems, which oftentimes he was having to reprimand and help them get back on the right path. And so he comes across as harsh and stern and, and maybe overly confident in his own opinion. But when you read about him in the book of Acts, he's courageous and he's kind and he's filled with grace and understanding. Listen to this encounter that the Apostle Paul has. It's found in Acts chapter 17, starting with verse 22. Paul stood up in the middle of the council on Mars Hill, or the Areopagus, and said, People of Athens, I see that you are very religious in every way. As I was walking through town and carefully observing your objects of worship, 
I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What you worship is unknown, I now proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples made with human hands. Nor is God served by human hands as though he needed something, since he is the one who gives life, breath, and everything else. From one person, God created every human nation to live on the whole earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their lands. God made the nations so they would seek him, perhaps even reach out to him and find him. In fact, God isn't far away from any of us. In God, we live, move, and exist. As some of your own poets said, we are his offspring. Therefore, as God's offspring, we have no need to imagine that the divine being is like a gold, silver, or stone image made by human skill and thought. God overlooks ignorance of these things in times past but now directs everyone everywhere to change their hearts and lives. This is because God has set a day when he intends to judge the world justly by a man he has appointed. God has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. May God give us wisdom and courage for interpretation And may God give us wisdom and courage as we try to apply the truth of Scripture to our lives. Amen. The backstory of this um, encounter that Paul has with Epicurean and Stoic philosophers at Mars Hill is that he was waiting for two of his friends, Timothy and Silas. And he was in the city of Athens, and he had been there for a period of time, and he, he was walking around the town getting to know where he was and know his surroundings. Imagine if one of us from a town, mid-sized town the size of Las Cruces, gets to go to San Francisco. And you're in San Francisco for a couple of days waiting for a few of your friends to show up. And so instead of just sitting around in your hotel room and waiting for them, you decide to go for some walks. And you walk downtown, and you go, and you see all the places, and you see all of the sites. That's essentially what Paul was doing, although he was a little more intentional than just randomly roaming. He was looking through eyes to see and understand the place where he lived, or where he was dwelling, where he was waiting, I'm sorry, where he was waiting for his friends. He was looking carefully, watching carefully, listening carefully, And he was visiting people that he wanted to talk with. So he went to the synagogues to start with because he was a rabbi. Then he went to the synagogues to teach people about Jesus. About the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the salvific power of knowing Jesus and living in the way of Jesus. And he would go from synagogue to synagogue, and along the way he started noticing altars that were built to all sorts of gods. And then he started hearing songs that were sung, and he started noticing conversations that were happening in coffee shops or wherever it was that he was going. And he decides that he's going to start talking to people. So he engages in conversation even outside of the synagogues, 
talking about Jesus and the way of Jesus. And word gets to these philosophers, these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers that would hang out at this place called the Areopagus, which in Latin means Mars Hill, when the, when the, the, the Greek is translated to Latin, it means Mars Hill. That's how we get that name. Mars Hill was an interesting place. It, it was a place where people would gather. Originally, they would gather to discuss philosophy and theology. And as time went on, it became a place where, where adjudication happened. If a disagreement between two people were, was happening, they would go and these philosophers and theologians would judge between the two people. And 500 years prior to this event that I just read about, Socrates was accused of proclaiming foreign deities, which was the exact same thing that the Apostle Paul was accused of. And just like Paul, he was invited to come to Mars Hill, to the Areopagus, to defend himself and to make his best argument for these foreign deities that Socrates was proclaiming. Socrates lost his argument and paid with his life. But Paul not only survives, he gains people who are curious about what happens. Because what I didn't read is starting with verse 32, it says, When they heard about the resurrection from the dead, some began, began to ridicule Paul. How, uh, however, others said, We'll hear from you about this again. At that, Paul left the council. Some joined him and came to believe including Dionysus, a member of the council on Mars Hill, and a woman named Damaris, and several others. It's not just that Paul survived. Paul helped people to find life. Life that really is life. Life abundantly that Jesus came to give. But how he did it is the part that is most interesting to me. First off, he was respectful. He noticed right away that these were very religious people, and he doesn't ridicule them saying, oh my gosh, you say you're religious, but you're worshiping the wrong gods, and starts on the attack. He doesn't say that. He compliments them. Look, I've walked around, and I've noticed some beautiful things. I've noticed altars all around, and what I've come to realize is that you're a very religious people. I am too. And I've noticed altars to all sorts of gods, but there's one that is to the unknown God. Let me propose to you a way of thinking about this unknown God. Now, what Paul doesn't do is say all of these gods are correct and right and welcome. He doesn't do the thing that oftentimes happens in culture where we're going to say, like, look, I don't really care which path you choose. All paths are equal. He says, no, like, this is the way. But there is good truth in all of these others. But if it's good and it's true, it comes through this person named Jesus who created the way. So he starts off by being respectful and looking hard to understand where he is. So what I think we can learn from this is 
that we can do these same sorts of things in the culture we live in today. In 1907, I read a story about these missionaries. I didn't read it in 1907. But I read a story about missionaries in Korea in 1907. These missionaries went to Korea, and, and they were having this big response amongst the peasants. And so as they would talk about the way, and they would teach about Jesus, and they would teach about the grace of God that's found in Jesus Christ, they were getting a big response, but it was mostly amongst the poor and the peasants. And they gathered a bunch of them together one time, and they were having a revival. And this thing broke out, and it was, it was called Tong Siong Gido. Now, I may be butchering the pronunciation, and if I am, I, I apologize. But Tong Siong Gido means prayer aloud together. And what happened was the missionaries were preaching, and they were singing songs, and the congregation was all joining in. And then all of a sudden, everybody started praying out loud at the same time. And what they wrote is that it sounded chaotic and scary to them. But they recognized something of the Spirit in it, and so they allowed it to happen. They recognized this is not our culture, and this is not our way of being with Jesus. But it's their way, and there is something of the Spirit of God in this. The interesting thing is, is that in South Korea where the Christian church is just multiplying exponentially, they still pray in this way. What would have happened if those missionaries had stopped and said, no, 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 shh, that is not how we pray. I do the praying, you do the listening and the nodding and the saying of the amens. Or one of you can pray and submit your prayer request. They allowed the Spirit of God to bring about change that they weren't necessarily comfortable with because they recognized that the culture itself needed God. We're in a time right now where things are changing. They're changing drastically, and they're changing quickly, and they're changing in ways that we don't even understand and that we cannot predict. So what do we do in the midst of this type of change? Because here's one thing I do know, is that God did not cause this pandemic to happen. The God is in the response of God's people to the pandemic. And so if we spend our time fighting with one another about whether you should wear a face mask or not wear a face mask, whether churches should open up, which remember, even Paul says we've learned that you cannot contain the Spirit of God, or not, whether we should sing out loud in worship or whether we should hum in worship, like all of the things that we're being leveraged about today, literally today, Christian churches are being leveraged for, is change that we didn't expect, but what we don't have to do is get caught in the middle of the fight. What we can do is pay really, really close attention to the culture in which we live. Now, I know a lot of you who come to Morningstar or go to church in TRC are not from those places. I am not from Las Cruces. I am from Carlsbad, New Mexico. I moved to Las Cruces. I moved back to Carlsbad. I moved to Denver, Colorado. I moved to Abilene, Texas, and now I've been back. And I can tell you one thing. Every single place that I've lived is different, and it's different culturally. Now, it's not as different culturally as if I moved from here 
to South Korea, but it is nuanced difference. For example, when I left Carlsbad and went to Denver, I moved to a city that five years ago was named the second least religious city in the United States. The first least religious is Eugene, Oregon. The first is Denver, or second is Denver, Colorado. And we would go to soccer games. I've told this story before. We would go to soccer games and soccer practice with Elise. She was like three and four years old. And we would meet friends, new people, and they would say, oh, hey, what brought you to Denver? Because in our experience, nobody was from Denver. Everybody moved there. It was more like college than it was uh, uh, somebody's hometown. And I would say, oh, well, we moved here so that I could go to graduate school. Because if I said, I got, I'm going to seminary, that's just confusing to everybody. Oh, really? What are you studying? And I would say, well, I'm studying theology. Because if I said, I'm getting a Master of Divinity, well, for crying out loud, I don't even know what that means. And so I would say, I'm studying theology. Oh, interesting. What are you going to be? Oh, a, a pastor? A Christian pastor? I've never met a Christian pastor. What's that like? Tell me about it. And the doors were bust wide open with curiosity about religion and especially about Jesus. And the Holy Spirit was empowering both Michelle and I and our daughters who were tiny, like, a, like a, a baby and a toddler, to do the work of ministering to people and allowing them to see the life that really is life. Three years later, I get appointed to Abilene, Texas. And when we went there to visit the town and meet the church and do some house hunting, they put us in, in, a, in a hotel that was uh, at one point had been in embassy suites. And we walked in, and they had a bar. They gave us tickets for free happy hour, and they had a bar. And as we walked up to get some food at the free happy hour, there were two uh, eight-foot-tall tablets of the Ten Commandments at the bar. And if I still had my old BlackBerry phone, I could show you a picture that I took of it, and I text messaged that picture to as many people as I thought would think was funny and said, I found the buckle of the Bible belt. The Ten Commandments in a bar. <clears throat> we go to soccer practice. Hey, I heard you're new in town. What brought you to town? Oh, I, I, we moved here for work. What kind of work do you do? Oh, I'm, a, I'm the associate pastor at St. Paul United Methodist Church. I go to Beltway Baptist. See you later. The conversation was over. They knew who I voted for, what I listen to, what I drink, what I don't drink, the books that I like, the books I don't like. They thought that they knew everything about me in that moment. The culture was different, uniquely different. And then we move here, and I find that this place is a little more curious and a little more open to conversation than it was in Abilene. We have to know where we live. We have to know who we live amongst. We have to know the struggles that people have, the culture of the place, the history of the place. We've got to know what's going on, and not in a way that's insulting, and not in a way that we, so we can tell people what's wrong, but in a real curious and open way so that we can learn from people about this place called Las Cruces, and how the pandemic is affecting people in this place and in this county. And when we start to be able to gather again for worship, what are we going to do that's going to reach people and help them find life that really is life in a safe 
and healthy way. Change happens. And if the missionaries in, South, in Korea had stopped the praying together, we would not know the Korean church the way we do today, which is leading the way in Christianity. If Paul had gone to the Areopagus ready to fight instead of ready to teach and to learn, we may not ever even know the rest of the stories. They may have killed him the same way that they killed Socrates. Our job is to reach out in in a way that we can learn. Now, the careful, the thing that I need to caution you about is we are told by Paul to be in the world but not of the world. So how do we live in the world and allow our countenance to shine upon people who are feeling down and lost and scared, but in the process of knowing people and lifting them up, how do we do that without being pulled down also? I remember there's an old youth ministry analogy that if you're standing on a chair and you're reaching down trying to pull people up, they will pull you down also. It's a terrible analogy because it's saying, don't sacrifice yourself for other people. What I want to say is, how do you get down off of the chair with everyone and live there as a light in the darkness? That is the challenge of the time that we live in, the time that we've always lived in, and the time that we will always live in. Paul felt it, Jesus felt it, and we feel it. The gospel doesn't say that life is easy and that everybody's going to accept you and accept your beliefs. In fact, Jesus says quite the opposite. That if you follow me, you'll be persecuted. It's going to be a struggle. You're going to have to pick up your cross. But do it anyway. As the prophet Jason Isbell that Stuart was talking about earlier, he has a new song also that says, Be afraid, but do it anyway. Our job is not a life of ease or comfort. It's a life where we live fully knowing that the grace of God can overcome all of our fears. The grace of God will allow us to see the world around us through the eyes of Jesus and to have our hearts break over the things that God's heart breaks for. The power of the Holy Spirit will give us incredible creativity to be able to move forward so that we can reach more people and allow them to live the life that really is life. I often talk about during our passing of the peacetime when we used to gather in person that I have experienced the peace of God that comes through the grace of Jesus Christ. And I want everybody to experience that. So when I look someone in the eyes and I shake their hand and I say, may the peace of Christ be with you, It's not just for you. It's for everybody. Because I believe that the way of Jesus can literally save the world. Amen.